The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, I'm back, and it's good to be back. I had a great vacation. I always say I enjoyed it. My wife endured it. But we had an opportunity to visit if anyone been a Biltmore estate. I know some of you have been there, and I spoke to Katrina earlier this morning, and she was there uh, before heading to Tennessee, not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, but you can Google it, but it's a thing of beauty. It's a beautiful, beautiful house that was built by George Vanderbilt, and you know, I enjoy history, and just to be there, part of history, touch something that was built in the 1800s and still standing today, um, that those bricks, somebody in 1800 picked them up and put them up and now you're seeing it with your eyes, not just on TV, but physically touching it. They also had different gardens. You can go through different gardens. Uh, they had a section of different gardens and beautiful flowers, a greenhouse where flowers I've never seen before. And, you know, they try to keep it as much as possible as it was back in 1800s. And boy, they were living it up. I mean, having seen all these things and I mean, originally the property sat on 125,000 acres. Think about that. I got two and a half acres. I'm like, boy, I got to mow that? This is 125,000 acres. The house itself is 179,000 square feet. You know, when we're talking about 3,000 square feet, we're like, hey, that's a pretty large house. I mean, that equates to four acres of space, of living space. And, you know, people that lived there were beyond rich. If you really translate it into today's money, it makes Jeff Bezos look poor. If you translate it to this money, and you know, they had everything. They had fame, the cars or carriages, you know, the servants, the chefs. I mean, they had, all they had to do was just breathe God's good air, and that's it. Everything else was done for them. So I was thinking when I got to Tennessee up in the mountains, you know, what's the secret to a happy life? And you know, the air is pretty thin up in the mountains sometimes, so it's dangerous to start thinking out there. And the more I was thinking what makes a happy life, I was reminded of a king. There's a man in the Bible, a king. And I shared with you when I was a baby Christian, when I started out, I wanted to be like this king. And I was praying to God to do the same as he did for this king, to do something for me, just as he did for this king, until I read these words in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Behold, I've done according to your words. See, I've given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there's not been anyone like you before you. So good, okay. Nor shall any like you arise after you. Well, so much for that. Can't be like this king. And the king was King Solomon, the wisest person the world's ever seen, the richest person. He had everything. So I changed my prayers and said, God, give me at least like 90% of what he had. You know, give me some of that wisdom and don't have to be like him 100%. You see, King Solomon, too, had everything. And look what he says in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. He says, I made my works great. 
I built my house, myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which the water to the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants, had servants born in my house. Yes, I had great possessions of herds, flocks, than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, special treasures of kings of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kind. So I became great. And excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whenever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasures. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Kind of sounds like the Vanderbilts. You know, built himself mansions and pools and orchards and so forth. And then if you look at Ecclesiastes 1.16, it says, I commuted my heart, saying to his heart, look, I have attained greatness. I have gained more wisdom than all before me in Jerusalem. My heart, was under, my heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And then Ecclesiastes 2.25 says, for who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? So obviously he had a good life, Right? I mean, talk about a person who had all his needs met. He was richer, he was wiser than any man in history in the world. But yet this wise king comes to an old age nearing the end of his life. And Ecclesiastes 2.11 says, Then I looked at all the works that my hands had done, and all the labor in which I have toiled, and indeed, all was vanity. And grasping for the wind, there was no prophet under the sun. In Ecclesiastes 1, 1, 2, it says this, the words of the preacher, the son of King, uh, son of David, the king of Jer- in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of all vanities, all is vanity. And he says, all is vanity. Came to the end of his life. And he was not happy either. <laughs> And he goes on to say this in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. Nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. So why is Solomon not happy? And folks, the reason he was not happy is because he forgot the beautiful song. The beautiful words his father David wrote. And kids, you know, you should listen to your parents once in a while. They know a thing or two because they've seen a thing or two, right? And those words are in Psalm 23. That's the psalm we're going to be looking at today. The secret of satisfaction, the secret to a happy life is found here in this wonderful Psalm 23. And Psalm 23 is easily the most famous, the most familiar chapter in all the Psalms. Millions of people have memorized this Psalm. An average person knows anything about the Bible. They probably know the opening line to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, I never preached a sermon series on Psalm 23. So for the next couple of weeks, we're actually just going to stick here and look all some of the things 
in Psalm 23. So today we're just going to be looking at the first verse. Now, there's danger. I might warn you. Here's the danger. When we get to Psalm 23, we're all on such familiar ground. We're all heard it. Oh, I know that. But there's a proverb that says familiarity breeds content. And that may be never truer than comes to this psalm because it's perhaps the best-known passage in all of Scripture. You know, it's been quoted in nursery schools, battlefields, weddings, funerals. And it's sweet to a little child, and yet it's perplexing to a scholar when you really start looking into it. Now, Psalm 23 is a magnificent, it's a wonderful passage, and I want us as a church, if you haven't, to memorize this psalm by the time we go through this series for the next three, four, five weeks. And it can be done, and I'll explain how it can be done very easily. Two, three hours tops, but you'll have some, several weeks. So let's read Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in the green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Ye though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." There's so much in verse 1. If you look at the verse 1, I was preparing an outline. I was looking at just the first one. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, shepherd, I shall not want. You know, we can just emphasize each word in this verse and have a sermon. The Lord. Not a Lord, but the Lord. David wrote this psalm. The Egyptians had about 360 gods. Canaanites, where they came into the land, lived. They had many gods. But he's talking about one God, the Lord. We can put emphasis on his great sovereignty, eternal God, the King of kings, the one who rules over all. Or we can put emphasis on the word is, says the Lord is. You know, there's a tone of confidence about this sentence. There's no if, nor but, nor even I hope so. He says the Lord is. We can talk about my. The Lord is mine. Talk about that little word, my shepherd. Not the shepherd. He's not saying the great shepherd, a good shepherd. Now, he is all those things. But David is saying, my shepherd. Talks about the personal relationship with the Lord that he has. And he is responsible. The shepherd is responsible to take care of his sheep. We can focus on that. And that's where we're going to look at today. So we can find the secret satisfaction, the secret of a happy life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So I'm just going to break the sermon down in three things today. That is going to be God the sovereign, God the shepherd, 
and God dissatisfaction. And if you look at the, I don't know about your translation and what your translation you're looking at, but you see that word Lord. It's all caps. It's a translation of an Old Testament word for God. It's the most sacred name for deity that Jews had. It was the word Jehovah. Every time you see it all in caps, it means Jehovah. And you can say Jehovah is my shepherd. And the James Jehovah, you have to understand, was a, such a sacred name. It's the self-existing, one who never had a beginning, one who has never had, he's no, has no end. He's the great I am. He's the Jehovah is my shepherd. You know, the, uh, the name is so sacred that Bible historians say it was only pronounced one time a, a year when the, chief, the, the priest went into the holiest of holies, he would whisper Jehovah. They never spoke this name audibly. And, uh, you know, when Jews would translate in Scripture and he's writing Scripture and he comes to the word Jehovah, he puts that pen down, he gets a new pen to write just that name and continues on. It's the self-existing, the great I am, the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. You have to understand what David is saying here. He's saying, Jehovah, the great one, is my shepherd. The God created the universe and everything in it. He's saying, he's my shepherd. So I want you to understand that that word Lord talks about sovereignty, the great Jehovah, the great I am, the one who rules the universe. And let's talk about God the shepherd. Let's move on from sovereign God. I think everybody knows that, so I don't have to spend time talking about the sovereignty of God, but God the shepherd. So what we need to understand is this, though. The Jehovah of the Old Testament that he's talking about is Jesus in the New Testament. When we say Jehovah the Lord, it speaks of his deity. When we say, when he says the shepherd, that speaks of his humanity. And the Lord Jesus described as the shepherd three times in the New Testament, in the, in the Bible. First of all, he's the good, good shepherd. He is the great shepherd, and he's the chief shepherd. So if you look at John 10, 11, and 14, it says, I am, this is Jesus speaking, he's saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. So when David is talking about I am the shepherd. So we have God the sovereign, and then we have sympathy. He's a king and a shepherd at the same time. God who is able and shepherd who is available for his sheep. He's God in heavens and shepherd in our hearts. Everyone needs a shepherd, especially the sheep. The sheep need a shepherd. And three times in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is described as a Shepherd, and any shepherd, you know, may lose his life for the sheep, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. He didn't lose his life for the sheep. If you look at that verse in John 10, 11, it says the good shepherd, what? Gives life for his sheep. Again, I know the air is thin in the mountains, but follow me here. Did you know there's only one person that ever chose to die? Only one. Saying, what am I talking about? Well, there's really people that chose to die. 
Well, no. There's only one person that really chose to die. What about kamikaze pilots, right? When we had the Pearl Harbor or other people chose to die, people die by their own hand. They choose to die. People who give themselves for others, they choose to die. You see, none of these people chose to die in the final sense of a word. They only chose when to die. No one has ever chosen to die but Jesus Christ because he was the only one who didn't have to die. All the rest of us are going to die sooner or later. Some people may just choose to die a little sooner, but nobody has chosen to die except one, and that was Jesus. He laid down his life for his sheep. So everyone, you and I and everyone before us and everyone after us will eventually will have to die. But only one person, the good shepherd that gives life for his sheep, he didn't have to die. And Bible says in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus is Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, if that's true, then Jesus is God. He had no beginning. He has no end. He's who was and is and is to come. He always been and he will be forever. And folks, when we see Jesus Christ dying on the cross, he's in total control. He's in total control. He says, Father, I commit my spirit to you. Put my spirit in your hands. You know, when most people die, we told they reflectively kind of gasp for their last breath. But the Bible says Jesus gave up the Holy Ghost. He gave up the Holy Ghost. And any shepherd who's worth his wage would give his life for the sheep. And he had to be willing to do that. All around there's wolves seeking to destroy the sheep. And the shepherd had to be willing to put himself between his sheep and the wolves. Why? Well, the Bible clearly tells us. But a hireling, in John 10, 12, 14, but a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolves coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. Jesus is our good shepherd. He was not a hireling. He was born into this world, and he came down and left this throne not to come here and show off how good he was a, of a preacher he was, to show off how his Bible knowledge to the priest. He came to be a shepherd and to die for his sheep. In John 10, 18, he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again, this command I have received from my Father. Now, folks, you see a farmer. Have you ever heard of a farmer actually dying for his sheep? You know, he's out in the woods or something. I've never heard of a farmer dying for the sheep. Maybe he was defending the sheep and scared off the wolves. He shot a gun or something like that. But I often heard sheep dying for the shepherd, right? The shepherd needs some meat to eat. Maybe that's why he keeps the sheep in the first place. Wants food. But have you ever heard of a man or a person stand up and say, I'm going to die for this goat or this sheep? You say, well, that's absurd. What's more absurd is God dying for us. It's more unthinkable that God would die for man. 
Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And when he left, laid his life down for the sheep, the good shepherd that dealt with the penalty of sin. Because in book of Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's what Jesus paid. And folks, we need to understand, either you will be pardoned, your sin will be pardoned in Christ, or it will be punished in hell. But one thing is for sure, for folks, it, it, will not, it will not be overlooked. Because God laid down his life for the sheep to deal with the penalty of sin. And unless there's a good shepherd who has died for your sins, you're going to have to face the wrath of angry God at judgment day with your sins unatoned. He's the good shepherd. But then the Bible also calls him not just the good shepherd, which tells us of his dying for us, which we read in John 10, 11, but he's also shown in the Bible as the great shepherd. Look, if you will, in Hebrews 13, verses 20 to 21, it says, Now may the God of peace who brought up the Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of everlasting covenant, Make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is was pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we read in John 10, 11 that he was a good shepherd. He died for the sheep. In Hebrews here, 13, he's called the great shepherd. See that in verse 20, who brought up the Lord Jesus from the dead. Let me ask you a question. What good is a dead shepherd? A dead shepherd can't do any good to the sheep, right? He died to save them. We read in Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone in his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, yeah, he died. The good shepherd died. But what good is a dead shepherd? In reality, we're now left, if he's dead, we're left without him, we're lost, we're unprotected, we're exposed to predators. Dead shepherd, he's not good at all, except that he paid the penalty for the sins. But Hebrews says, the great shepherd, it speaks of his resurrection. He Lord, the Lord was risen. That deals with the power of sin. Death couldn't hold him down. He's the great shepherd. Not only he's the good shepherd, he has to be good for die for our sins, but he's the great shepherd. He rose from the dead, and that's what makes him great. Now a living shepherd can do you some good, can he? Psalm 23, if you look at it, it really begins with the Lord is. He didn't say the Lord was or the Lord's going to die. or He says the Lord is my shepherd. That means right now. Is present tense. Because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, that means he's with us if you're a child of God 24-7. That means he is always with us. And then we move on to the chief shepherd. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, it says, And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. When who appears? The chief shepherd. And there you have the ministry of our dear Lord, really. He's the good shepherd. He had to be good to die for our sins. He's the great shepherd. He had to be great, so he rose from the dead and not only took the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. And then he's the chief shepherd. That means he's coming to take us home one day. He's coming to take us out and take us from the very presence of sin. Jesus is the chief shepherd. That tells us about his coming for us. He's coming back one day. And one of these days, you're going to see the chief shepherd. He's going to appear. It says when the chief shepherd appears. And folks, you need to understand when Jesus is coming back, he's not coming back a little baby in a manger or something like that. You're not going to see him hanging on the cross anymore. He's coming back as the shepherd king riding on a horse. You're going to see him, king of kings, lord of lords. He's coming back one of these days. And folks, if the signs of times are all around us. Matthew 24 is knocking on our door, and I believe the Lord is at the door. And the more I watch the news, the more I hear things that's going on in the world, we're very close. I believe he's about to call his sheep upward. And you know, looking at Psalm 23, one of the things that's beautiful about the Bible, there are some little signs of inspiration, but... For example, you know, we have Psalm 22, 23, 24. Everybody knows it goes in order, right? Um, Not profound, it's obvious. But in Psalm 22, if you look at it, it talks about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 is written, if a man were standing at the foot of the cross, he's gambling for his garments, and the words of the cross, he sees the piercing hands and feet of Jesus, sees all his enemies, that's what we find in Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 is really, talks about the good shepherd dying for us. But in Psalm 23, you find the great shepherd who's leading his sheep, the one who's alive, the one who's risen, the Lord is my shepherd. And then in Psalm 24, you find the chief shepherd coming for his sheep again. Look at, if you look at Psalm 24, uh, uh, verses 7 through 10, it says, Lift up your hands, O gates, and be lifted up your, your everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your hands, O gates, lift up your everlasting doors, the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. You see that? It talks about him coming back. That's the chief shepherd. Three psalms. You see the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. The good shepherd had to pay the penalty of the sin. Great shepherd rose again. And the chief shepherd will be coming back. But now, wait a minute. You know, Cornet talked about God the sovereign God the shepherd, thought we were talking about happy life satisfaction, right? Well, that's what this verse is about. If you look at Psalm 23, 1 again, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You have the sovereign, that's the Jehovah. You have the shepherd, that's Jesus. 
And friend, when you take God the sovereign plus God the shepherd, that leads to satisfaction. That's the secret of a happy life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And there's only one way anyone will have satisfaction. You will never, ever, ever, ever have a little bit of satisfaction in your life until you can mean it and say, truly, the Lord is my shepherd. When that becomes a reality for you in your life, when you say, the Lord is my shepherd, the Jehovah God, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, he is my shepherd, only then you can say, I shall not want. I shall not want. Every need will be met by guiding and providing the hand of the shepherd. Apart from him, there's nothing we need or desire. So many people think the secret of a happy life is having God give you all these things. Well, all those people, you know, the Vanderbilts really, they weren't really, a, they had everything, but they weren't really happy. You know, as we're walking through, and one of the things they were pointing out on the tour, the husband and wife slept in separate bedrooms. How's that work? told my wife, and my wife said it would be a good idea. And I said, why? She said, you snore. I said, I don't snore. I'm just dreaming I'm a tractor, you know. They didn't have a happy life. And we read about Solomon. He even brags about it, kind of. I had greatness. But then he comes to the end of his life, and he says, all is vanity. See, that's not the secret of satisfaction. And we, some people take Psalm 37, 4 and say, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And do you think if I love Jesus, he's going to give me a pink Cadillac? Absolutely not. That's not what it means. The Bible says it's in him. If you look at Acts 17, 28, it says, for in him we live and move and have our being. You will never be satisfied apart from him till you can say the Lord is my shepherd and it's not what he gives me. But it's the shepherd himself. He himself. You know, I was sitting there on a lake and there were kids were fishing and stuff. What did God make a fish do? Swim in the water, right? I look at the birds. What did God make birds do? Swim in the sky. So I was thinking, you take a fish and put it in the water, it's happy. But what if you took a fish and put it on a tree? Think it's going to be a happy fish? What if you take a bird and put it in the water? It's going to be an unhappy bird. They're out of their element. And what is the element that we were created for? God himself. God himself. And until you know him, you'll be like a fish in a tree. You'll be like the bird in the water. You'll be like the square peg trying to go into the square hole. When a person can say it and mean it, the Lord is my shepherd, then he can say, I shall not want. And one of the best known ways you can know God is by God's names, sweetest form of intimacy. You know, sometimes I think that God described himself, we all know uh, how he described himself, but I think he described himself as an incomplete sentence, right? Sometimes people say, I am love, I am light. What did God say? I am. I am. That's how God described himself. Why? Because you see you're hungry. He's the bread. 
You're walking in darkness. He's the light. You're searching for truth. He is the truth. You're lost. He is the way, as Mike read this morning. And I was thinking about the names of God and looking at this psalm. And really, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, took this entire psalm. If you really look at all the verses, kind of, and I'll go through them with you quickly because we'll look at them later on in the messages. But there's a God name in every single verse of Psalm 23. If you look at Psalm 23.1, he says, the Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. Who is that? That's Jehovah God. We talked about that. It means self-existent one, the eternal one, who he was and is to come. But then it says, I shall not want. If you look at Psalm 23.1, the second part, who is that? I shall not want. What's well, that's Jehovah Jireh. The Lord, my provider. If you look at Genesis 22, 14, it says, Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. That is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. If you look at uh, verse 2, he makes me, makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside the still waters. Who's that? That's Jehovah Shalom. Well, what is that? Lord of our peace. In Judges 6, 24, it says, So the Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it is still an offer in Abzanite. And if you move down to verse 3, it says, He restores my soul. Jehovah Rapha. That means the Lord, my healer. In Exodus 15, 26, it says, If you diligently heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And then he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Jehovah Tzedekah, that's the Lord is our righteousness. Not your righteousness, the Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And if you move down to verse 4, you have to walk through the valley of shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me, with your rod and staff will comfort me. Jehovah's Shema, that means the Lord is ever present. So when we're going through rough patches and anything, he's always with us. And Ezekiel 48, 35 says, all the way around shall be 18,000 cubits in the same of the city from that day. The name of the city from that day should be the Lord is there because the Lord is everywhere. Jehovah Shema. In verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. So, protecting from his enemies. What is he doing? Jehovah is The Lord is our banner. The Lord is our banner. Moses built an altar and called it by name, the Lord is my banner in Exodus 17 15. What David was saying, folks, is not the satisfaction to what things he gives us, but it's who he is. Is the Lord your shepherd? Is the Lord your shepherd? Well, one of the ways you can know is if he called the shepherd your Lord. Is the shepherd your Lord? If you can say the Lord is my shepherd, 
You won't be able to say that until you say, the shepherd is my Lord. Not everybody can just stand up and quote this 23rd Psalm and claim it for their own. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus was talking about. Can't say, the Lord is my shepherd. And John 10, 26 says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Jesus was talking to the unsaved Pharisees there. And there are some unbelievers who are not part of the sheep. And if you're not part of the sheep, it's impossible to say, for, to say the Lord is my shepherd and I'm his sheep when you belong to the devil's goats. In John 10, 26, you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. You see, there has to be a relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. And John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So when you say, my shepherd, does the shepherd say, my sheep? Do you hear that back? Because you know his voice, and they follow me. Do you hear his voice? Did you receive him as Savior and Lord of your life? My sheep hear me. They hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He had a personal relationship with this shepherd. If you look at John 10, verses 3 to 5, it says, To him, the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you know why we have so much false teaching and so forth? Because people don't study the Word. You want to you hear God say something? You know, sometimes people look for signs or looking for some kind of miracle. If you really want to know what God is saying, it's right here. There's nothing new. You want to hear his voice? Read this. Read this. It's right here. There's nothing new. You're not going to have some kind of experience. You need some kind of experience to understand God. Everything God wants to say to you is right here. That's it. And David knew his shepherd. He knew his voice. He was familiar with him. David was not just any sheep, but he's a sheep that became familiar with his voice. And that's why he said, I can walk through the valley. He's going to be with me. He's going to provide. David had a sweet fellowship with his shepherd. Then it's a permanent relationship. Look at what Jesus says. It's not just a personal relationship. It's a permanent relationship. John 10, 28 says, and I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now, any shepherd, farmer, is going to lose some sheep. But the good shepherd never lost one. Never lost. He says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. People ask me, do you believe in eternal security? I do. Eternal security, what, what does that mean? It means, folks, you're looking at a man that can't die. 
That's what that means. Sure, you can die. But it's impossible for me to die. And John eleven twenty six 26 says, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I do. Well, what if you die? Well, I won't be dead. I'll just move out. We're just pilgrims. Finally move into my country home. Maybe God's given me one of those Biltmore estates. I don't know. But he says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Eternal. How long is that? It's never ending. I give them eternal life. And folks, not only that, it's better. It's a protected relationship. If you look at that verse again in 1028, it says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And people say, well, you know, I see people snatch. Well, they're, they're goats. They, they were never with us. They were, they were pretending to be a sheep. I mean, when you come to God, when you truly confess your sin and you taste how God, how good he is, you may be a backsliding and so forth. You're, you have to be a goat to not to go back to Jesus. You see, the sheep, even though they go astray, they always come back. And I don't think the good shepherd is going to lose any of his sheep. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And that's the secret of a happy life. Secret of satisfaction is the Jehovah himself. The Lord is my shepherd. When I say that, then I can say I shall not want. The secret to being able to say I shall not want, folks, is to truly understand what David is saying when he says the Lord is my shepherd. You know, we were on vacation and when we got to Tennessee, the house was a big house. And I didn't know it was going to be that big. So I called out my sister and said, hey, since they're doing, her kids, nephews, since they're doing, uh, you know, that online schooling now, maybe they can come down and also be with Stella and so forth. There's plenty of room. So they came down. So they came down. And, you know, we had a good time. We have our breakfast, lunches, activities, and things like that. But one of the things I always told them throughout the week was I challenged them to memorize Psalm 23. <sighs> they were not that into it. But hey, memorize it, Psalm 23. Until I said, I'm going to give you $100 each if anyone can memorize Psalm 23 and tell me word for word, not miss a word, by the time we leave vacation. Still no interest. As a matter of fact, one of them said, man, I don't need $100. But that all changed because we're watching TV and I see my daughter on the steps and she's saying like this, like, Okay, probably something happened, made her unhappy. So I'll go over there. She's like, I'm ready to recite. <laughs> I said, okay. Guess what? She got $100. So I went and told all the boys that Stella just received $100. She didn't have to pull any weeds. She didn't have to do any chores. All she had to do was remember Psalm 23. And they saw the cash money. 
three hours later, they're all lined up. Took them a couple of tries, but I had to call the bank and be like, hey, can we get a second mortgage? Because I'm going broke over here. And guess what? All of them got it. Except the five-year-old, he couldn't read, and he was so frustrated, he wanted the $100. And my daughter was, uh, was uh, helping him, trying to memorize it. She was reading it and telling him, hey, repeat after me. And, you know, and he said this, and I had to write it down. And because he didn't want to see everybody looking at him because he was embarrassed, he tried, tried, and he just couldn't get past verse 1. So on the last day, he said, you know, um, he, was, he was almost crying that he wanted to do it, but he couldn't do it. So I said, tell me what you can remember. So we went in the kitchen, and he said this. He misquoted the psalm, but I think it was great because it helped me in my preparation. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I've got all I want. The Lord is my shepherd. I gave him a dollar for that. <laughs> so that's at least worth a dollar. But that's the secret to a happy life. The Lord is my shepherd. I've got all I want. Folks, you know, there's an example I was reading about a little boy who loved pancakes so much that he would glutton himself. And over the pancakes, his mother thought that she would cure him of this disease. And she said, I'm going to you, make you all pancakes that you want. He thought it was a great deal. So he started eating them up, eating them up. And she continued to make him, and she says, Johnny, do you want another pancake? And he says, I don't think I even want the ones I had. <laughs> Folks, you see, what this illustrates for us, our deepest recesses, even we see it with Solomon, people in, in real life too, uh, all these, even what we think is satisfaction, is dissatisfaction. It's not satisfaction. You know, we think it's going to satisfy us, but then it just ends up being another dissatisfaction, as with the pancakes. The Lord is the good shepherd. He laid his life for the sheep. He died for you. The Lord is the great shepherd. He rose from the dead to guide you and lead you. He's not a dead shepherd. He's here to lead you and guide you through your life. And when you give your heart to Jesus, he doesn't just say, all right, sink or swim. He's here. And he's the chief shepherd, folks. He's coming again. He's coming soon, and you need to be ready. And if you, the Lord is truly your shepherd, you'll live a happy, satisfied life because he'll take care of everything, your spiritual needs, your emotional needs, your directional needs, your physical needs, and most importantly, your eternal needs. Folks, he will satisfy them all. And all his sheep said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us this time to come to your word and think about just this one verse, Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd, what it truly means. Yet there's so much in it. Father, let us analyze our lives. Are you really the shepherd of our lives? Do we come to you first when we have needs? Do we run to the shepherd and hoping he would take care of us. And based on what you say in the Bible, which I believe is true, you will, you will take care of us. You will never leave us alone. And Father, I'm so thankful for this church and 
Only you know the future. And we ask for a blessing that we can be a blessing to this community, the people around us, friends, relatives. And Father, I also pray today for Vincent and Marilyn as they head out to Florida. I ask that you bless them and keep them, look over them, and help them find a church where they can continue serving and be an encouragement there. And I also ask as we leave this place today that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.